0: A Couple of weeks ago, actually, Parashat Last week, we discussed the pasuk "Hatzur Tamim Palo Kichal Drachav Mishpat" that Hashem is perfect, and we discussed questions about whether His providence is perfect, whether everyone who dies dies for a reason for mishpat or not. We discussed various theological angles on that question. This week, for Parashas Bereishis, I want to continue discussing the question of. But from another angle, an angle that connects to Parashas Barashas, and that is the question of whether Hashem ever regrets what he's done. Does Hashem ever change his mind, experience remorse? Does Hashem ever... Humans do that. Humans, we get wiser, we learn from experience. So people, certainly, we, uh, we feel differently about things than we may have felt originally. But can we say that about God? Theologically, we would assume no. Certainly, we're familiar with the, the simple theology of the Bible. Again, at Sur Tamim Paulo, God is perfect. Bilam says, Hashem does not change his mind. Hashem is not a human being who can grow and evolve and change his mind. That doesn't work like that. Certainly, the, we're, we're familiar with Maimonidean theology that we always say that Hashem is unchanging. He doesn't even have emotions around him, explains, because emotions imply changing emotions. One day happy, one day sad. Humans experience growth. We have feelings. Our feelings change. They, they grow and they, they contract. But God, God is perfect. God is unchanging. Some people might find that conception of God very cold, very uh, unrelatable, but that's certainly the, the Maimonidean concept of God. Yet, on the other hand, uh, there are other concepts of God. Certainly in the... Simple reading of various psukim, various as we'll see, various midrashim, maybe Kabbalistic and Hasidic theology. Certainly there are suggestions that HaKadosh Baruch Hu changes his mind. Now, it's, this is a very fraught topic, obviously. Obviously, this is heresy to claim, according to the Rambam, to claim that God can change his mind, that God can grow and reconsider and evolve, sounds heretical. So, it's a, obviously, it's a very fraught topic. But I want to speak tonight about two... Two areas in, in Pashas Bereshis, where Hashem seems to be described either by the Psukim or by, the, or by Chazal as changing his mind. And we'll discuss, of course, how normative Jewish philosophy does not take this at face value. But uh, it's instructive, nevertheless, to consider these Psukim and these Midrashim and how they've been interpreted by prominent Jewish thinkers. So the first has to do with the 16th Pesukim in the Torah. The fourth day of creation, the Pasuk says, God made the two great lights. And then it says, the, the great light to rule during the day, and the lesser light, the smaller light to rule at night, and the stars as well. So you read this pasuk, uh, you're hit immediately by a contradiction, literally from one word, from one, one, one clause to the next. First it says, He made two great lights. And then it says, mar and mar one, was, one was large and one was small. The references, obviously, are both to the sun and the moon. But first it describes them both as being gadolim, And then it says that one was gadol and one was katan. One was katan. So how do we square that? So the obvious, the obvious interpretation is Ibn Ezra, B'charshur, Radak, the, the, the obvious interpretation is B'darek HaPshat that everything's relative, size is relative. They were both large vis-à-vis the stars. The sun and the moon are both much brighter than the stars. But vis-à-vis each other, they were not the same size. The sun is larger than the moon. The moon is smaller than the size. The moon is called Katon vis-à-vis the sun. But it's called, it's called one of the two Gidalim vis-à-vis the stars. Now, of course, we know that the moon is actually much smaller than the stars in general. There are all kinds of stars, obviously, but uh, the, the visible stars certainly. The, many of the stars are vastly bigger than the vastly bigger than the moon, and certainly we know that the, sun, the moon the moon is much smaller than the much more than the sun. These points are actually recognized by the Rishonim, Ibn Ezra and Radak. For example, Radak tells us that when it says that the sun and the moon are large vis a vis the stars, we don't mean that, they, that their actual size is large vis a vis the stars because we know, he says, that all the stars, except for Kohavanoga, except for two of the planets, I always forget which is which, but except for two of those, uh, except for two of the planets, the, the, the rest of the stars, the fixed stars, the, the movable stars, the moving stars, are all bigger than the moon which is pretty much what we would assume as well. I don't actually know. Again, I forget which ones Koch and Noga are, whether those actually are or are not bigger than the moon. But roughly speaking, the Radak is certainly correct. Most of the visible celestial bodies are certainly bigger than the moon. The astronomers tell us this, he says. So what does it mean that the moon is considered big vis-a-vis the, vis-a-vis the stars? It means that it has more light. It has more light because it's... Uh, why? Closer, closer to the, to the Earth, and that's that's basically true also. You know, th- th- their astronomy is not quite the same as ours, but that's roughly the truth, that the moon has more light because it's closer, and therefore reflects a lot of light from the sun, and so on. They understood that as well, that the, the Radar goes on to, to make this point, that the moon's light is simply reflected light from the sun, and uh, I'll call upon him, this is Pshutoshal Mikra, obviously, that in term that the, the, the Psukimah, A, the Psukimah referring to the the perceived size, not to the actual size. And B, when we say that the moon is big, we do not mean that it is big vis-a-vis the sun. It's it's much smaller than the sun. It's much less light than the sun. We mean that it's bigger vis-a-vis the stars. It has more light than the stars. And that is certainly Pshuto Shel Mikra. There is, however, a famous Midrash of Chazal. It's a Gemara, a couple places, and it's brought briefly by Rashi. The Gemara says, Gemara discusses at length in Masech HaSchulen, the Gemara says... The Gemara deals with this question. Rabbi Shimon ben Pazi asks... How do we explain this? First it says... Shnei ma'or, shnei they were both great. And then it says... Ha-gadol and ma'or So the Midrash says... The Gemara says... It actually changed. The size of the moon actually changed. Initially, they were both large. Initially, they were both large. What happened? The moon complained and it says... Two kings can't share one crown. Hashem said, okay, you're complaining... You, I decree upon you, you go and diminish yourself. The moon was very sad. It said that uh, I made a valid claim. Uh, what I said was reasonable. We, we can't both rule it together. Why am I being punished? So Hashem tried to make it up to the moon. He gave, uh, he gave the moon various, uh, various marks of uh, privilege, of distinction. The, the, Jews, the Jews will count the The calendar. That, that, the, that the Jews will count days and years, the Hayullah Soslim Adim and so on, but uh, and he gave it various other types of uh, blessings, and so on, of uh, marks of distinction, but the moon was not happy. After everything Hashem said, the moon continued to be hurt, and uh, un, uh, unmollified. Hashem did not manage to conciliate the moon, so Hashem said something incredible. Hashem said, Amar HaKadosh Baruch Kapara Alai, he told the Jewish people, bring a kapara for me. I diminished the arech, I made it feel bad, bring a kapara for me. Where do we see that Hashem asked us to bring kapara for him? Rav bin Ben-Lakish said, how come the Saur of Rosh Chodesh, there's a Saur Lachatas that you bring on Rosh Chodesh and the Torah says that that Saur is Lashem. All karbanos are we're not allowed to worship idols, obviously. All Kabarnahs are for Hashem." So what, why is this carbon, the Soyer of Rosh Chodesh being singled out and referred to as this Soyer is Lashem? So, HaKash Baruch Hu says that Soyer z'yei kapara al Shmiyati This goat is going to be a kapara for me, apparently. I, I need an atonement. I did something wrong. I made the moon smaller and I need a kapara for that. And that's obviously an incredible, incredibly provocative thing to say. God does sins, God is capable of sinning, God needs atonement. Uh, it's very, uh, maybe very appealing to, 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 mad, to modern people who like the idea of a fallible God, but clearly this is not the God of the Jewish tradition, this is not the God of traditional Jewish thought. So what on earth does this Gemara mean, that we need a, that God needs a Kapara? At this point, you know, we, we may think of this as kind of a Maimonidean question, but this point was clearly, the, the, the difficulty with this Gemara was acknowledged well before Maimonides, Going back to Rabbi Nassim Bal Ha'aruch, a thousand years ago, a couple of centuries before the Tannaim, this point was already recognized that this Gemara simply cannot be interpreted at face value. It's actually ironic that the that the Rishonim bring this as an Aruch. It's not actually present in our text of the Aruch. The editor of the Aruch points out that of the the, the the modern Aruch points out that. There are numerous indications that our Aruch is uh, incomplete. This is one of them, one of the examples he brings. We and bring a passage in the Aruch. The Aruch interprets this Gemara completely differently, clearly motivated by the theological radicalness of, uh, of, of the face value reading of the Gemara. The Aruch says, the sire is a kapara for Yisrael, for the Jewish people, not for God. Now, I, God, I am determining when this carbon shall be brought. The Jews need a kapara. When to bring the kapara? That's up to me. I make the rules. The time for this kapara is on Rosh Chodesh. Why? A favor to the moon. I owe the moon something. The moon is insulted. I want to mollify the moon. So I I gave it the privilege of having this this particular kapara brought on Rosh Chodesh. So according to the Aruch, chas v'shalom. He doesn't say chas v'shalom, but obviously that's the subtext here. God does not need a kapara. The Gemara says, haviu kapara alai. It does not mean kapara alai. God does not need any kind of atonement. God is not capable of sinning. And kapara lie means I'm telling you to bring the aruch, uh, to bring the carbon on this and this day as a favor, uh, as a boon to the moon, because the moon feels bad. But uh, not the, the Gemara, does, absolutely no way, does not mean what, what it literally seems to say that God needs a kapara. That just can't be. The riff, Rabbi one of the Rambam's great predecessors, the Rambam considered him uh, a great teacher or mentor in halacha, if not I don't know about agada. But the Rif also the Rif grapples implicitly with the same problem, and the Rif also tells us that of course that's not what the Gemara means. He says that uh, after nothing else, Hashem did would mollify the moon. Hashem says I'm going to do one. I'm going to offer you one last covenant, one last uh, sign of respect and distinction that will make you happy. What is this mark of distinction of, of dignity, of uh, th- that will be that the Jews and every Rosh Chodesh will bring a will bring a kapara lachaper avonasechem to, to atone for their averus, not my aver. That's why Karsh Baruch Hu said, "Bring the carbon that you need for a kapara. You, the Jews, you need a kapara. Bring it a Rosh Chodesh. Why lachaper a kapara for you, and, uh, and and by doing this, you'll accomplish a goal that I have, my goal of making the moon feel better for its. Uh, Diminution, and that's what it means. If you paralai again, the riff doesn't explain what's bothering him, but obviously, what's bothering him clearly is the same theological problem. It doesn't make any sense to uh, it doesn't make any sense to claim that the moon that that a Kosh Hu needs a kapara. A Koshbaru is perfect. Koshbaru is unchanging. Koshbaru cannot possibly uh, need any sort of kapara. So that's why these that's why these rishonim, the 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 riff and the aruch is brought by Tosus. Are saying that that's not absolutely not what the Gemara means. They they, they take the Gemara very far from 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 Shuto Gemara. The Gemara says the Gemara's language is quite simple and quite direct. The Gemara's language is kapara That's uh, that's the Gemara in Chulin. The it, it, it very it very much sounds like he's saying that the earlier in the Gemara the Gemara says haviu kapara alai bring a kapara for me It very much sounds like the Gemara is saying that God needs a Kapara. But again, that was simply untenable to the the, the Aruch, to the Rift, to Tosis. That just can't be. Therefore, they take the Gemara completely out of Pshuto, and they say, bring a Kapara for you. You need a Kapara, but do it on Rosh Chodesh, because that will make the moon feel better, and that will uh, eliminate my debt to the moon. Obviously, what it means that the moon has a debt and the moon feels bad... That's a whole separate question. What exactly is the? Is, does this Agada mean? Is the moon really a sentient being? Rambam says that it is. That they may have believed that it was back then, but the, we think it's a great ball of rock, obviously. But the, either way, the point is the Rishonim found it completely untenable the idea that God needs atonement, and therefore they said that that absolutely cannot be what uh, what, what the Gemara means. A few years ago, there was a book by an academic named Dov Weiss. I think he's a son of Rabbi Avi Weiss. So Dov Weiss is a Reed graduate, uh, but then he went and did his PhD in Jewish studies at University of Chicago Divinity School. So he has smicha, but apparently he recognized, he himself says in an interview, he recognized that some of the questions he had about theodicy, about how can God annihilate everyone on the flood, and how can he command us to uh, commit genocide in Eretz Canaan, and so on. He was bothered by all these questions. He said he couldn't ask these questions at YU because that would be heresy, he says, so he left uh, YU and went to other places where he was free to engage in what would have been considered heresy back at YU. So he published an entire book called Pious Irreverence, where he, Confronting God in Rabbinic Judaism, where he, he apparently amasses, I have not read the book, I have to admit, and I cannot really find excerpts of it, just reviews and so on. He apparently amasses all kinds of literature from Midrash, particularly from the Tanhum Midrash Midrash, you midrash, know, later midrashim from the time of the Amoraim, sixth century or so, seventh century C.E., where he he constructs a whole. He finds a whole tradition of rabbis in the midrash, even in the Talmud, uh, challenging God, criticizing God. Not always direct, not usually directly. Not that they themselves would have had the temerity to challenge God, but they interpret biblical verses, kind of like along the lines of what we find later about Abraham and Sodom, where. Avram says, How can you do this? It's not fair. If there are ten people, will you save them? Over there, I mean, God was right. God said, yes, I will save them, but there weren't ten people. So he didn't. So we don't find that God confessed to any uh, immorality. But Weiss apparently finds all kinds of madrashim, which again I, I can't comment directly on his uh, on the sources he brings, because I haven't read the book, but he apparently finds all kinds of sources in Madrashic literature that, uh, that there are madrashim that were willing to put criticisms of God into the mouth of biblical figures and uh, thereby imply that God is capable of doing wrong and admitting wrong and, uh, and evolving and learning from uh, from people. And I, I think it's clear that this is clearly heresy in, in terms of norm, normative Judaism. There's no question that you can find biblical verses and, and even certainly verses in Chazal, as, as we just discussed, with Haviyu Kapara Alai that indicate that God can sin, but again, there's lots of things in Torah Shabachsav and Torah Shabalpeh which if taken literally would amount to heresy according to normative Judaism. The Torah describes God's body as well, his nose and his hands and his feet and so on. And it is widely agreed that such ideas are heresy. So again, certainly you can certainly find examples in, in, in the biblical text and in the Midrashic literature of uh, various types of uh of challenge, to uh, of challenge to God, but clearly I think normative Jewish theology would say these cannot be interpreted literally, we, that uh, just as we study literature we use tools like metaphor and allegory and simile and so on, and certainly when you study Tarshish Bukhsav it's widely accepted that there are at least certain narratives, certain theological narratives that have to be understood using, uh, using such tools of metaphor and allegory. We've discussed previously the limits of that. There, there were those who took that too far and started interpreting the mitzvahs as being merely allegorical and not binding in their literal sense. That's uh, a bridge much too far. But uh, that, 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 that's, that, that's not acceptable according to normative Judaism. But certainly there are descriptions of God and theological passages in the Talmud. It is widely accepted that some of them have to be interpreted metaphorically. And clearly, as we just saw, this example of the Aruch and the Rift, the, they, they, they took for granted that we cannot take a passage a passage regarding God having admitted sin and requiring atonement. Literally, they said, obviously, that's not acceptable. Obviously, we have to, we have to reinterpret this Talmud, this passage, in order to bring it in line with, with what we know, the theology that we have of God. A few, a little while back, a few weeks ago, a month or two ago, a month or two ago, the, I was at a party, a Shalom zachar and somebody was saying a Dvar Torah. So he said, he quoted what's apparently a well-known Hasidic tale. I haven't been able to track it down and get uh, an authoritative or quasi-authoritative source for it, but apparently it's a well-known tale. My father tells me it's a uh, well-known tale. So somebody asks his Rebbe, give me some guidance. How can I do tshuva? So he says, go to such and such a person and listen to how he talks to God and how he does tshuva. Something like that. So he goes to this person and he eavesdrops and he overhears this person uh, deep in conversation with God. He tells God, Look, God, I sinned, I confess, Vidui. I wasn't so honest in business. I cut corners in ritual law sometimes, maybe casherous, and my davening wasn't what it should. All right, I agree. Guilty as charged. I I've done certain things wrong. Now let's talk about you, he tells God. There was a pogrom in the next village, and I lost my cousin you know, to uh, to murderous anti-Semites. And there was an epidemic here, and uh, babies died here. And then there was famine, and so on. He says, "These are all the things you've done. I'll tell you what, God, let's let's call let's call it even. I won't I won't, uh, I, won't uh, I won't push my, my comp- press my complaints against you if you don't, uh, and you'll drop your objections to me." So again, from Norm- so I told this person, so this person went on to say, you know, what I take from this story is whatever lesson he learned, I told him afterwards, I said, what I take from this story is that the Vilna Gone was more correct than uh, I ever realized in his uh, early uh, vehement objections to Hasidus. Again, I- I'm not really well versed in Hasidus, and, and, and there may be a deeper meaning to the story that I'm not uh, quite realizing, but again... From a normative Jewish perspective, the idea that you can uh, criticize God and hold him in front of a court and uh, and say that you've done this and this and you're wrong and you and, and you owe us for the for what you've done is uh, heresy, chutzpah, and uh, you know, it's you know sacrilege and uh, and um, you know it's it's the worst sort of uh, worst sort of chutzpah. to Baruch Hu. And it is certainly not acceptable. Today it's fashionable in some circles to put God on trial for the Qaeda and so on. Even if you, it's certainly legitimate to discuss the Qaeda, to discuss the theology of the Qaeda and, and try to understand what God was doing. But this idea that, that we as human beings are entitled to sit in judgment on God and criticize him and that God himself is capable of erring and admitting error is something which is clearly uh, out of bounds of normative Jewish theology. I want, to, I want to spend a couple of minutes looking at another example in this Parsha, where we, in Parsha's Bereshers, again, where we seem to have a question of God admitting error, confessing error, regretting what he's done, and that is the end of the Parsha. In the end of the Parsha, we have God's decision to eradicate humanity. That takes us into Parsha's Noah, where God decides to bring the flood. So, the, the Psykums say, Hashem saw Kirabah He saw there was great evil. Man was man was committing great evil throughout the land and and so on. Hashem. regretted. Hashem generally means regretted. Hashem, regretted that he regretted that he had made humanity. And he was pained. He was his heart was pained. He he felt so bad that he had made human beings. Hashem said, Okay. We're going to go to uh, plan B. We will, we will sanitize the world from humanity. I will eradicate, obliterate humanity. Uh, once again, the second time, the Torah uses the word nichamti. I regret, I regret that I created, I regret that I, not just people, I regret that I created all of life, uh, people, animals, crawling things, birds, I regret it all. Noach b'ani Hashem, but Noach still found favor. So, of course, he saved Noach in the teva. Vainochim, again, very strange language. Hashem says twice, not once, but twice. It says Hashem twice. Hashem says uh, the Torah says Hashem regretted it. So, what on earth does that mean? So, the, the Rishonim asked this question. The, the Rishonim point out that it says in uh, that, that Bilam tells us in Balak in Parsh's Balak. Bilam, of course, is not exactly uh, one of our heroes, but nevertheless, uh, the, the theology of Bilam is widely assumed to be correct. The theology expresses, it says, Lo mm-hmm. Ishkel God is not a person that he lies, and he's not, a, he's, he's not a human being that he regrets, that he has second thoughts. Yet we find twice in our parasha that the, the, Hashem is has described, uh, the same language is used twice, that Hashem regretted creating people. There are several other places throughout Tanakh that we shown and bring that God is described as regretting things, in Sefer Shmuel, it says that God initially gave instructions to anoint Shaul as his king, Shaul sinned, Shaul disobeyed God, Hashem tells Shmuel, we're going to appoint David, I'm going to appoint David in his stead, because I regret, I regret that I I regret that I coronated, that I I appointed Shaul as the king. And later, Hashem had brought Hashem had brought misfortune on the Jewish people, then it says, V'yinochem, Hashem regretted it, in In Yonah, just a few days ago, we read in, the, we read in Yonah, it says that uh, Yonah, when he explains later at the end of the story why he was reluctant to go to Ninveh, he explains because, although Hashem intended to destroy Ninveh, Ninveh did tshuva, as we saw as we saw with the way it worked out, Ninveh did tshuva, and Hashem did not punish them, and Yonah says, I knew you would do that. Because I knew that you are malhara. Once again, Hashem is described as regretting, as having second thoughts about things that he does. So we have uh, several psukim here, three or four psukim, where Hashem is described as regretting things he's done. And yet uh, Billam says explicitly, unequivocally, Hashem does not regret anything he does. So what is that all about? So Bukhar Ashar, followed by some later commentaries, Bukhar Shar says, that the pshat is as follows, I think intuitively, more or less, this is what we would all probably assume the answer to this question is. He, he, he expresses it in some detail, somewhat formally. He says, when a human being changes his mind, when a human being makes a promise, makes a commitment, he says, and then does not follow through, he says there are a few reasons why that can happen. One reason is because he simply changed his mind. He breaks his word. He decides i would rather not do that. I promise I'll give you some money. I'd rather not give you the money. I'd rather keep the money for myself. That's uh, that's breaking your word. That's changing your mind. God doesn't do that. He says sometimes humans don't follow through on their promises because they can't. Humans are not omnipotent. God is omnipotent. Humans are not omnipotent. Humans can't always do what they promise to do. I can promise to help you do something, but uh, I may not be able to. I I may try and fail. I may have uh, something that prevents me from doing it. So, so again, humans can, either, can sometimes change their minds, and that's something that God never does. God never breaks his word. Humans can sometimes be unable to fulfill their commitments. God is not unable to do anything, so neither of those two applies to God. That is what Bilam meant when he said, when Bilam. Those, those are the two phrases in the Pasuk of, in Pasuk and Parshish Balak that, that Bilam said, Lo ish ke'el v'yechazeiv, u'ben adam v'yesnacham. So, cause of falsehood refers to someone, someone who uh, breaks his promise, who fails to live up to his commitment. loish Khazev. God never, God never lies. God never breaks his word. And ben adam v'yisnecham. He says that means because he can't. He 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 has second thoughts because he's unable to do it. That God is kol yachal. God is omnipotent. God never does. So. That's what, that's what Bilem was saying. However, he says, there's a third reason why people sometimes don't do what they, uh, what they promise. That is not because anything changed from the perspective of the person making the promise. His intentions are exactly as they were before. His abilities are unlimited and exactly as they were before. However, sometimes the circumstances change. The, the merit of the recipient changes. For example, the, 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 if Hashem promises to do something bad to somebody, to a nation... And they do tshuva, then uh, then Hashem, the Hashem does not do it. Rega, al The Navi says sometimes Hashem promises to do terrible things, uh to destroy. And if they do tshuva, Hashem does not punish him, as with Ninveh. Sometimes the Navi says Hashem promises to do good, and the people then sin and become less worthy. Hashem does not do the good that He promised to them. So when it comes to a kashbarhu, He says. That sometimes happens. That Koshbar Baruch who promises good or bad, there, there is a sheet of the Rambam that a nevuah that's, that's for Tov, never, is never withdrawn. However, that's difficult. The navi explicitly says that sometimes Hashem does withdraw promises to do, to do good. We discussed that uh, several years ago, I think, different, different approaches to when Hashem does withdraw a promise for good when, when He doesn't. But either way, for our purposes, the point is, the only time Hashem ever fails to, to follow what He promised to do is if the circumstances change and the recipients of his, either good or bad, are no longer deserving, no longer worthy, no longer appropriate for them to receive whatever he had planned, that's fine. That that's fair. That's quota Therefore, he says, when Hashem created people, kol hanikrab eshmi God God made the entire universe for His for His glory, and insofar as they are fulfilling that role, then then he let them, then, they, then, they, then they remain. As soon as they do not, he says, then they're, they're going to be destroyed. That, that's not included in, in uh, Ben Adan V'Yisnacham. Sha'ul, Hashem made Shaul the king, assuming, that, hoping, assuming he would listen to him. Once he sinned, then he no longer is going to be the king. Now obviously, the bukhar Shah acknowledges in the last line of his explanation, we still have a theological problem here that God knew the future. So if God knew this was going to happen, then why did he do it in the first place? So that's a difficult question. Bukhar Shar says he created them as an object lesson for other people. So I'm not sure what that means in Parshus, Boracious and Noah. He created the entire world planning to wipe it out. everyone should learn the lesson that God is willing to annihilate the entire uh, biosphere, except for Noah and the Teva, in order to teach people a lesson, maybe. So that, that, that that's a difficult question, which we're not going to get into in too much more detail today. But the point is that Bukhar Shar says again, of course, the classic theology. Maimononeans and non-Maimononeans all agree here, God does not change his mind in the sense of growing and of changing and of uh, becoming wiser and having different opinions. That is not what happens. When 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 God acts differently toward His creations, that is because they have changed, and a different uh, different approach is warranted. Not because God, even though the word chosen is which usually means to reconsider something, that's not what happened here. What, what happened here is that people were deserving of a different attitude on the part of God, and that's why God and that's how God behaved toward them. But not, of course, that God actually changed, that God had second thoughts, so to speak, about about what he was going to do to, uh, to people. Rashi really says something similar already, going, going as far back as Rashi. So Rashi brings several pshatim and how to interpret Vayinachem, uh, according to one pshat, It means that uh, Hashem decided to have a different attitude, a different posture toward his creations than, uh, than he had had originally. Brings other examples of this. He says other examples of Nachama, the example of Shoal, and so on. Machshavah cheres, meaning a different, uh, a different perspective, a different posture toward them. Not that he, uh, not that he changed his mind in any in any sense. In the next pasuk, Kini chamti <machshavati> ki I regret what I've done. Rashi again. Rashi goes out of his way to explain that not that he regretted, that he felt uh, older and wiser. Rather, chashavti malaso salashar I have considered what to do. I have decided. I have thought about what to do. Now that I've made them, I'm, I decided what I have to do is such and such. Not again. Rashi takes pains to avoid any notion of regret of having. Uh, when we say regret, we mean uh, we, we mean we, we we've we've seen the error of our ways. That is not God doesn't see, God doesn't make errors. God doesn't see the error of His ways. God has to. God. God decides to act in an appropriate way toward His creations based on the way they behave. But of course, not that there is any element of, uh, of regret or of uh, reconsideration on the part of God. Ramban, Ramban says, when the Torah says, and uh, this type of language, which is uh, very much uh, human language, language of feelings, of emotions, of regret, just as we say when we talk about Aphashem and Regel and Yad we understand, we call that anthropomorphism, we call that, uh, that's merely a figure of speech, we don't mean that God has a hand and a nose and so on. Here also, we don't mean that God changes his mind, we don't mean that God feels sad, none of that is, uh, none, none of that is, we don't interpret that literally. We say that the, that, uh, that we say that it means that God... That, that that God behaved to that 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 again that that God that, that this is what a this is what a human would say if, if it happened to a human, but of course with God, the, these words are not to be interpreted literally. What does elibo mean? What does it mean to his heart? So, so according to according to Ramban, that means he didn't communicate this to any prophet. He didn't make a public he didn't make a, a public announcement that at least not yet. Eventually, he told Noach this, but uh, but uh, eventually he told Noach about this. But but again, Noach wasn't a navi who was sent. Explicitly to give them tochacha like Ninveh, although according to the midrash noach made the teva, that was a kind of advertisement of the fate that was uh, that was slowly approaching for the for the Durham But in any event, the, once again, we can't say we can't say that, that Akash Baruch changes his mind that would be considered uh, got, as Bilam said again. It, it, it feels funny quoting Billam as keep quoting Bilam as an authority here. But uh, this is what the Rishonim say. What, what Billam said is is normative Jewish theology. Lo via v'yehazev. God is not a human who uh, who lies, who changes his mind without without good cause, without a change on the part of his creations. Uben adam And once again, God is not uh, God is not an entity that changes, that has second thoughts, that reconsiders. God always acts toward his creations exactly as they deserve. Plus me to Of course but but again it's uh, despite the fact that there are psukim and as we saw earlier there are madrashim that indicate that god has human like uh, evolution of feelings and of attitudes that is not acceptable to normative judaism certainly not to the Rambam, but not even to uh, even to the non-rabbinians not to the classic not to the classic Rishonim, who took for granted that god is not uh, as billam said loish kel via chazev u ben adam ve